Hey guys, welcome back to the show. My name is Lauren and this is my producer Liam. Hello. Did I ever tell you about that guy who like yelled at me in the comments for not introducing you? No. Yeah, that uh, happened. I was offended that episode. Yeah, yeah. that happened once <laughs> and I've I don't think I even introduced myself in that episode, but ever since then I've been I've been scared to not introduce you. Um so welcome everyone. A big thank you especially to our live viewers and before we get into anything, I just want to say if you like the show, you want to help support us, be sure to like, comment, share, subscribe, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And if you want to go the extra step and help us keep the lights on around here, you can go to blazetv.com forward slash Lauren to subscribe. Use the code Lauren to save money on your annual subscription and not only do you help support us and what we do here but you also get other great shows like you get glenn beck mark levin steven crowder uh ali stuckey graham allen chad prather phil robertson more people are on blaze tv than are not on blaze tv i feel you will never have anything uh to not watch so yeah really appreciate the people who go and subscribe and if you are a live viewer another option you have is uh we will be doing super chats at the end of the show at around uh about an hour in in the after show so anything you you uh you send us we'll try to answer and that helps us out a lot too um okay so down a business Today we have Borderless, Lauren Southern's new documentary. Mm-hmm. That's out. We're going to talk about that. And then incels are apparently getting plastic surgery to make themselves more attractive. And childless single women, one study says, are the happiest among us. We shall see. Um, okay. So Borderless documentary. You watched it, right? Yep. Yeah, I did. I did my homework. Yeah, good. Um, it was uh, good. It was good. So... People who I hope have been watching the show for a while will know that Lauren Southern, who we had here a few weeks ago, two, two three weeks ago, three weeks, I three think. weeks yeah, ago. Three weeks yeah. Right. Um, she was on here discussing her documentary Borderless, which kind of talks about the migrant crisis and human trafficking in the Mediterranean. Um, that is now out on YouTube after some issues releasing it uh we very much encourage everyone here to go watch it if they haven't already and for people who maybe aren't familiar with the premise we actually have the trailer here which we're going to be showing you the founder of an aid group has surrendered to police he was one of several aid workers wanted for helping migrants illegally enter the country erci which operated on the island of lesbos is now closed 30 of its members facing charges in greece including spying and alleged people trafficking Have you been involved in human trafficking? This is just the tip of the iceberg. There are thousands of people, if not millions, just waiting on the other side. Waiting for the right moment to cross the water. So it's a very impressive documentary if people haven't seen it yet. The yeah. production quality is just amazing. They, they do have a great like job. Kellen Robertson. Yeah, and uh, George. Like they have like yeah. drones yeah. going on. I don't even know how they would do that, but it li- not only does it look good this is not a low budget documentary mm-hmm. but um what i think people don't understand about it like i've heard people say all kinds of stuff about it like oh this is alt-right racist propaganda it's really not i mean no. anyone who says that 
hasn't seen it, I think. No, no, exactly. It was pretty sympathetic to, I think, everybody involved in, in this situation. It, it was pretty good and educational, I think. Yeah, right? and what, what makes it different than I think a lot of things you've seen about the migrant crisis is that it actually tells the story of what's happening from the migrants' perspective. Right. Right, like the, the people who are kind of recruited and sold this lie, like, hey, give us this money and, you know, you'll be able to go to Europe. And paradise. Every, yeah, paradise. Exactly. Everything will be great. Mm -hmm. um, and it kind of, Lauren follows these people, uh, you know, to these camps where it's like, not only have they had to give up all this money, but now they don't have papers. They can't work these places. Like a lot of them say they made a mistake, would rather return home. It's just... It's something that really affected the way I'm looking at the situation as well. Right. Um, you know, I'm someone who's always been very, very critical of open borders uh, ideologies. But I think this, it, it does give you a better idea of what people on the other side of things are going through. Mm. And I do want to say, too, one thing that, that was important for me, at least. I'm someone that's pretty skeptical. And whenever I see these kind of documentaries coming out from people that are political commentators, I immediately kind of... I need to really make sure that this is fact, right? Because mm -hmm. there are people that are biased. You know, we've we've seen kind of controversy over this stuff over the, over time. So I was looking at this saying, this might be kind of propaganda-ish stuff, but it turned out to be, I think, a pretty well-rounded documentary. Yeah, and that's what a lot of people yeah. are saying about it, that it is, you know, I'm not saying that like Lauren and them don't have their own opinions, but I think they do as good a job as they could have trying to present as much information as possible and kind of let the viewers decide. So yeah, it's on YouTube right now. Uh, if you search for Lauren Southern or even Borderless, it should pop up. There was some difficulties with the launch. Oh yeah. Yeah. YouTube right. was uh, being a little bit tricky. I mean, Hey, you know, technical difficulties. technical difficulties happen, but I think we're at a point where so many of them happen. Like it, it got kind of, deleted after no notifications went out i think it's kind of finally fine now it's doing well view wise so yeah. uh yeah just be sure to check it out um okay so moving on we actually have a sponsored message today very lucky to, to have that uh, by the people at freedomworks uh so we all know this is no surprise we've talked about it dc liberals are very much trying to import socialism into america because hey maybe it didn't work those other times but got a really good feeling about this time uh what a lot of people probably don't know though is that right now hhs secretary alex azer is actually helping their cause by trying to let foreign countries dictate the prices of your medicine this is something that's actually happening this is not hyperbole so doing this not only could it lead to shortages of medicine potentially but it it would definitely set medical research back decades since it would make it make it harder for researchers to fund their studies uh, looking for cures to things like diabetes alzheimer's and cancers so i'm i'm guessing if you're watching this you probably don't want foreign governments meddling with your healthcare. So thankfully, FreedomWorks is doing everything they can to sound the alarm, stop this experiment in its tracks, uh, but they can't do it themselves. They need your help. So that's why I'm asking you to go to www.freedomworks.org slash Lauren to tell Secretary Azer to fix patients and not prices, because make no mistake about it, tying the prices of your medicine to other countries that doesn't per that doesn't put America first. So go to www.freedomworks.org dot org slash lauren to tell secretary azer to put america first and fix patients not prices that's www.freedomworks.org slash lauren you can go there and act now uh so incels we have another story about incels and i'm glad you're here yeah. with this because i've talked about incels before on the show but i feel like a woman talking about incels they don't really like that it's kind of how i feel about the second segment yeah, which um, is going to be about, yeah. about women. But no, I mean, I 
everyone should be able to have their opinion, right? That's no, I, I completely agree, of course. That's yeah. what we're fighting against. Right. Um, so people might be wondering what exactly is an incel. It stands mm. for involuntary celibate. So someone who isn't getting action. Right, right. Yeah, they, yeah, they want some and they're not getting any. Yeah, and I think what I kind of distinguish is that not everyone who can't get a girlfriend is an incel, in my opinion. Incel kind of refers to like this largely online community of guys that usually tend to be quite bitter toward women. At least yeah. that's the way I, I see it. I think it. the bitterness is a huge kind of marker of what yeah. makes an incel. Yeah. Like I would never call someone who just has trouble getting a date an incel to me. Yeah, it's absolutely. like, it's the, this whole culture and ideology and attitude around it. Yeah. 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 It's a lot of outward pointing too. That's one of the things I noticed about them. This, this, yes. The problem can't be somehow inward or fixable. No, it has it's to be. all women. Yeah. All women. Uh, so according to this one article that's been shared a bunch on social media, um, incels are now turning to surgery to fix their looks. Um, it's by, I think it's, yeah, the cut. How many bones would you break to get laid? Incels are going under the knife to reshape their faces and their dating prospects. It was actually a pretty good piece of journalism too, I think. That was yeah, pretty good I, was, I was surprised. Yeah. And like- I was impressed. There were some promotional tweets and posts that I think weren't very well done, but I think we have to remember that a lot of the times the actual journalist who wrote the piece often isn't in charge of marketing headlines and stuff like that. Oh yeah, probably most of the time. Yeah, I would yeah. say most of the time too, but the actual piece is pretty well done because yeah. I think a lot of people, especially in the media, they don't really know what an incel is. No. They just think that's anyone who's ever been on 4chan. This journalist actually was a little bit able to understand meme culture too. Yeah. Because right? the incel culture is like a huge kind of meme thing. Yeah, so, Chad's and Stacy's. Right, yeah. although it goes on and on. I mean, they missed they messed up black pill a little bit, but I I gave them I gave them a pass. Yeah. You know? So I mean the the I guess point of this article, which is actually pretty long and pretty in depth, is that yeah. now incels are actually getting surgery in order to improve their dating prospects. Um. So I have a lot of things to say about this. We did a video a while ago about plastic surgery, and I just yeah, want to put it, this true. out there: like, if you want to change something about yourself, you should have the right to do that. I'm like, no one has the business telling you what you should or should not do. But at the same time, I think with incels, like, I'm not going to say that looks don't matter. We did a whole video about yep. the way dating or the way looks affect dating. And I think a lot of people got kind of triggered by it, but didn't actually watch it because I very much say that looks do matter. I'm not going to pretend that they don't. But I, at the same time, I think incels are under the mindset that if you're ugly, you're just you're screwed, can never get a girlfriend, Yeah, which is not true because ugly people they date ugly people the find love yeah. yeah yeah i've seen multiple videos for people that are fully physically handicapped that have i mean like yeah significant beautiful others. girl girlfriends yeah. who are not only like gorgeous but also like taking care of them so it's like i mean if these guys can find love and seem really happy with their significant other maybe the problem isn't just your looks that's all yeah. i'm saying yeah yeah absolutely yeah i mean i think to me the biggest thing that i would see and i'm not i don't have some kind of dark art knowledge of the female psyche or something like that <laughs> but these people seem incredibly bitter yeah. unconfident like they would talk about when they make contact with people's eyes like like it's a rare occasion for them right when they decide to <laughs> to look someone in the eyes it's like okay well like I, this is rare enough that i'm actually noted noting this exactly a, so yeah. it's like well this is a, this is a terrific gem of a person i'm sure i'm sure they just have a really good aura about yeah them, and that's so. what's too bad because it's like i think this is kind of like a self-fulfilling prophecy when you have yeah. low self-esteem um you're not successful with women and then that kind of like reinforces the idea that oh i can't get a girlfriend and then mm. it, like you just kind of get stuck in this rut of yeah self-defeatist yeah really exactly and i think like joe rogan 
he's talked about incels before and he he's he kind of mentioned that the problem is maybe that they're just going for women out of their leagues That's because part of it i'm sure yeah there are fem cells i've learned uh, through my internet <laughs> research which is like female incels girls who who claim that they can't get dates and it's like okay if there are guys and women who are both saying that they'd be willing to date anyone but no one's willing to date them someone's lying that's all i'm saying like someone has set the bar too high and isn't willing to stoop to that level which is fine you should have standards when it comes to dating but then i think you need to realize that maybe the problem is your standards uh versus just like all women uh being awful and again i want to re reiterate i understand that looks are somewhat of a barrier to dating okay i'm course, not yeah. i'm not dumb now, one of the things that really puts me off and kind of throws my empathy entirely out of the window for these guys, it's the idea that I think that they're all very kind of reductive materialists and they're really hedonistic, right? Like it's not just about getting like a significant other for a lot of these people that you spend time with. Like so these people hate women. Yeah. You know, a lot of them don't really do hate women, but they also worship these women at the same time. Yeah. It's like they, so they it, hate them, but they're mad that they're not interested, like that women aren't interested in them. And, and they hate chads. Yeah. But who are able them. to get women. Yeah. They're the attractive male counterpart that, yeah. that they incels believe life is very easy for. And actually, to, like we have a quote here yes. that's from the article that I, I find hilarious. Um, It's it's it's. A quote from someone, an incel, saying about chads, those guys who are praised day and night for their top tier genetics, making a crap ton of money, getting insane amounts of validation, never having to worry about paying the rent or any of that BS. All they think about is their next football match and coming home and having a threesome with two supermodels. By the way, chads are what incels refer to as like the good looking guys who are kind of quintessentially yeah. like getting all the girls. Um, like I said, I'm not going to deny that being good looking makes life easier, especially, especially dating to some extent. But like, if that's what you think life is like for people who are good looking, like right. you don't have to worry about paying rent. Uh, you just come home three sums with supermodels. Like that's a subset of a subset of a subset. That's like maybe an NF, some NFL players lives. Some yeah. Of them make maybe those for a like, limited time period. Right. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. It's, so it's like, again, you can go and get surgery, but if, if this is what you're expecting to happen to you when you get surgery, I think you need a bit of a reality check. But again, yeah, the other thing is like they're all about, it's all about sex to them. It's all about just being super, um, what do you call it? Hypergamous? No. Yeah, hypergamous, I think. Um, kind of. And just but, like hedonistic. Yeah, hedonistic. It's all about just having sex with as many people as possible all the time. Yeah. Right. And it's just like, okay, I don't have, I lost all sympathy for you if yeah, that's what they, this is all about. If you're someone who has that mindset, then it. Right. I don't really have sympathy for you either. And that's why I distinguish between an incel versus someone who just wants a, a girlfriend is looking for a relationship, but has been yeah. not successful to me. They are very different groups. Um, so yeah, people, uh, when this article was released, apparently people are not very sympathetic to incels. Um, people have been making fun of them for this. Some people are saying that there's a double standard in play. Like mm -hmm. incels will judge women based on their looks all the time. Right. Yeah. So a chat is what they call like the good looking guy. And I think a Stacy is what they call like the quintessential like good looking girl who yeah. they would probably say is a whore sleeping with all these chads. But like you're absolutely judging people on their looks and then you're going and kind of like trying to reinforce these same superficial standards. Like and again, you can do whatever you want with the way you look, but I think it you should have a little bit of self-awareness there. Yeah. You're just as superficial as the rest of us or at least who, you know, you're you're claiming I, that you're claiming we are. Um so yeah, there's this there's this one tweet and I, oh, actually, sorry, I, I missed something. Um, 
what I thought was funny is that on these for there are forums for incels and they actually go and like Photoshop each other's faces. Yeah. Uh, so we have some of those. And like, what's funny to me is that these aren't bad looking guys in the before and after. Like, see, there's one, I think the guy on the left looks perfectly fine. Right. And then the, like, there's another one, like, again, there's nothing wrong with the guy on the left. He doesn't need any, I don't think he needs any surgery. And then like the last guy, I mean, his hair's kind of weird, but like these, these are not, I don't know if these are like actual incel photos or if they're just kind of like ones that they, they found online that mm. other people have made. But these at least are guys who are by no means not good looking enough to get a date. Absolutely. Yeah. Like, I mean, no way. And what the, the characteristics for a lot of these people that they find unattractive are naturally fixable, like through natural means without surgery. Like working right? out or something like yeah, that. Yeah, right. Like some like getting grooming. Yeah, that's dumb. That all, that it's, doesn't look good. Doesn't, not only does it, it doesn't look good, you don't get the benefits of working out. You didn't earn them. And yeah, and it's like the... It's, you can make them. Like, it's not it's not hard. Everybody has deltoids. Yeah. You, you can make them grow. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so the, the other thing that I want to show is like this tweet that someone sent out, not very sympathetic to incels. Someone named Bob Chipman says, yeah, no, I've decided that shallow looks obsessed bros being psychologically victimized into cosmetic surgery, hell and abject self-loathing by the same market forces they willed into being to foist onto women for centuries is both hilarious and justice. Uh, so, yeah, there's kind of like the potential element of hypocrisy about people who yeah. kind of like, I don't know, judge others based on their looks, but they're also going willing to undergo the same surgery feels like a lot of projection going on a lot right? of projection but i do want to add an asterisk to all of this and that is that i think from reading the article um i think that especially the ones that look to undergo cosmetic surgery a lot of them probably do have some form of mental illness like legitimate form of either body dysmorphia mm -hmm. particularly the guy the main focus of the of, of the article seemed like he would go undergo the knife very regularly uh, for facial reconstruction all the time and then redoing the, the facial reconstruction. Yeah. It's, and that is like, that is an important distinction. Yeah. Like I, I don't have a problem with plastic surgery, but I think, and we, we see it with people like, oh gosh, that woman who's like getting melanin injected into her skin to mm. become black. Like at a certain point, it does become almost an addiction into itself. And I, you know, if you just want a little nip tuck here and there, who am I to judge? But if it's kind of like you want a an entire face do over, um, yeah, maybe the money would be better spent with therapy instead of surgery. Um, yeah, so I, I'm sure that many incels will be dropping us a bunch of love and likes in the comments, as they always do, but that's okay. Um, so moving on again, and also, I think I forgot to mention in the intro, we have Stefan Molyneux. Oh, yeah, coming that's up. very important. Yeah, in like, uh, in about 10 minutes after this segment, he's going to talk to us about immigration, libertarianism, atheism, Christianity is going to be good. Um yeah. Okay. So child women, childless women apparently are the happiest. There's this study that's been going around, um, being shared on Twitter, Facebook, et cetera, et cetera. A lot of, a lot of feminists are very happy about, uh, apparently what they've hoped for decades is true that single childless women are the happiest. And we have this excerpt from, uh, the guardian. Women are happier without children or a spouse says happiness expert. What is a happiness expert? I don't know. Is that like a, I don't know, a Disney World worker? I don't know. It's someone know. that wants to sell a book. Yes, definitely. Okay, so quote, we may have suspected it already. I don't think we did, but okay. Uh, but now the science backs it up. Unmarried and childless women are the happiest subgroup in the population, and they are more likely to live longer than their married and child-rearing peers, according to Paul Dolan, a leading expert in happiness. 
We do have some good longitudinal data following the same people over time, but I'm going to do a massive disservice to that science and just say, if you're a man, you should probably get married. If you're a woman, don't bother. Men benefited from marriage because they calmed down, Dolan said. You take less risks, uh, you take less risks, you earn more money at work, and you live a little longer. She, on the other hand, has to put up with that and die sooner than if she never married. The healthiest and happiest population subgroup are women who never married or had children, he said. Okay, so tons of, I will call them strong, independent women who don't need no man, right. are very, very happy about this article. Like I said, it's being shared a lot. And I'm going to preface all of this by saying, like, um, if you are a, a woman or even a man and you're not married and you don't have kids, it's your own personal decision to make. And I absolutely believe you can still be happy and leave a, lead a fulfilled life. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, for sure. It's and not I, for everybody. No, it's not for everybody. And I think if you don't want children, you shouldn't have children because people who don't want children don't make good parents. And if you don't want to get married, then, you know, do do your own thing. I'm, I'm not the boss of you. Right. But at the same time, because we're talking about like averages in this, right? We're talking mm. about population studies. Um, this really confused me because like we're so, we on our show talk a lot about things like marriage and yep. child rearing, family stuff, and there there's actually a lot of evidence on the literature in the literature outside of this one study that goes to show that married people are actually happier. So that's mm. what confused me about this because I I, I was seeing so many women online. Um, who I'm sure have just great, amazing personal lives uh, saying, see, I don't need a child or family to be happy. Ha ha ha. Um, you know how you can tell someone is like really happy and secure in their lives when they like have to like constantly tell you right. how happy with their choices well, that's they what are. I thought was a great paradox about this because to me, he's trying to sell this book to feminists when he's saying these kind of statements right? yeah. that are pretty reductionist a lot of the time, um, I would say. Um, but it's funny because I, the single middle-aged kind of feminist woman strikes me as someone who's very likely to buy a self-help book on yes. happiness, which I don't know. I'm just making an assumption, but it's probably not the best indicator that they are actually happy. Right. If they, so. if they need all of this help and guidance and self-assurance right. and positivity. Right. Um, but you know, we're not, we're not just talking out of our butts here. We actually, um, we have a kind of a, um, a, a, a paper that was critical of what what dolan said um you know disclaimer it mm -hmm. is from the institute for family studies so obviously they have their own opinions but hey you know what so does this dolan guy so that's fine uh it says are married people still happier for a long time the prevailing assumption in the social sciences has been that married people husbands and wives alike are happier than their unmarried peers the story is straightforward. Married respondents are much happier. <laughs> and consistent with prior research, parents are a little less happy than non-parents, provided they are unmarried. And so here we have a graph actually attached to this. And you can see um, this is like a, a, a large, uh, I guess, population that was examined over 6,000 people, which is pretty good. Uh, yeah, we have married people percent that said they're very happy. 40 and 41 people or married couples with no kids are a little bit less happy than their like mm -hmm. parent counterparts. It is important to note that this seems to be both males and females. Yeah, this, and this, this one, by the way, this is way, married but... uh, men and women. Um, yeah, so kids don't make a huge difference apparently to your happiness if you're married. And then we have two separated or divorced people and we see that if you are either divorced or never married but you have kids, you are uh, no. Yeah, you're less likely to be happy with, uh, with that. We actually, there's something I want to touch upon that in a, in a bit, but the, the article continues. 
It was therefore surprising to me to read an interview with London School of Economics professor Paul Dolan in The Guardian in which he offered this pointed assessment. Married people are happier than other population subgroups, but only when their spouse is in the room when they're asked how happy they are. When their spouse is not present, effing miserable. Yeah, to jump in, if, if a statement like that that's so reductionist and like widespread of a huge group doesn't yeah. set off alarms, then it probably yeah. should. It probably should. Like, yeah, how do you quantifiably rate effing miserable? I don't know. Um, so the article continues, the most interesting part of Dolan's findings is the suggestion that people say they feel better about their lives when their spouses are in the room. This represents a new contribution to the scholarly literature, even if the magnitude of the effect is weak. And actually this, um, this person who wrote this paper, he kind of goes into the data that Dolan is making these claims about. And apparently there was a difference in this particular study that Dolan is talking to um, in people's happiness levels when they were alone or with someone. But the like the magnitude was very weak. Like it's right. like he's making it sound like very happy to effing miserable. It's actually like a very minor, it's very minor. minor and also change. he didn't provide a lot of raw numbers in his charts. Yeah, he, so he really didn't. So there this wasn't guy, any information if it was statistically significant. So. Right. Um, but this guy continues, the story becomes clearer after looking at the ATUS questionnaire, which is what Dolan was getting his data from. First, it's important to note that general happiness is being measured, not happiness within one's marriage. The two are related to be sure, but far from perfectly. And second, ATUS isn't exactly measuring who's in the room. Now, this is the part about them being unhappier when their spouse is not there. Instead, apparently, respondents are asked this question. Were you interacting with anyone during this time, including over the phone? Yes slash no. Presumably, a spouse in the room is the most likely reason for an affirmative answer to this question, but there are many other possibilities. Children, friends, a telemarketer from Xfinity Comcast, and so on. It should also be noted that ATUS data are collected by a combination of time-use diaries and telephone surveys, not in-person interviews. So it just kind of seems like these very big definitive statements that this Dolan guy is using to make the claim that, yeah, women who have no children and aren't married, they're the happiest people. Yeah. It seems like it's really, really flimsy. He sounds like a cult leader to me. Yeah. The, ne the next step is, hey, come hang out with me, single ladies. Yeah, yeah. Like, you know? come over here. I, I have some more happiness juice for you. Um, <clears throat> Sorry. Yeah. So, I mean, bad methodology combined with the fact that social science as an entire study pretty much historically backs up the fact that married people are happier. It makes me just like really question this. Don't, I mean, you know what? Maybe I would need to see his study, but still, it, yeah. it just seems like so many people were like jumping onto this article. Like, yes, yeah, see, I told you everybody read Finally this. Finally validated. Look, you guys. Yeah, validation. Well, this is one of the problems that I, that I find we have with our modern understanding of the word science, mm -hmm. right? Like it's kind of like played as like this trump card. Oh, I have science to prove it. Yeah. Meanwhile, this like, one survey. <laughs> it's like, like empirical data is... It's easy to fudge. It's subject to bias. And also science is always subject to change. That's the nature of science. Yeah, right? especially when you're doing so, something like when I was in university, I TA'd a quantitative political methodology class. And like you can have really good research being done in the social sciences. But when you're relying on things like self-reported happiness levels, yeah. let me tell you, there are a bunch of confounding factors. Like it is not this kind of stuff is not easy to get to the core of. I'm not saying that people shouldn't be trying, but I think a lot of social science researchers are a little bit too blase with how they're like conducting these these studies, which is too bad. I, I would like to see a little bit more. Uh, mm -hmm. I don't I don't know, just empiricism in the social sciences field. Um, But, you know, just more broadly, a lot of people 
have kind of like hopped onto this article saying like, oh, this is what you need to do to be happy. This is what you don't need to do to be happy. Um, am I the only one that thinks that just like feeling happy is not the end all be all of life? Oh, no, absolutely. Just, yeah. You know, there, there's things more important. I think Claire Lemon actually tweeted about that. Yeah, um, exactly. Like meaning is, is more right. important than happiness. And I forget mm -hmm. who it is that said this. I think it maybe might have been Gavin McGinnis in our interview or him talking to someone else. Goodness. But the, the thing with like when you have people in your life who matter a lot to you, like including a spouse or kids, just general family members, like your your highs are higher and your lows are lower like you you you're happier than you could ever be alone but at the same time caring that much about someone leaves you really vulnerable like if anything happens to one of those people who you love or to your relationship you will feel worse than you ever could have if you were ever alone so it's like you know it's you're kind of vulnerable in that situation but ultimately i think like the fulfillment purpose being able to contribute something lasting to society i think those are a lot more important than just like mm -hmm. ephemeral feelings of happiness oh i completely agree and i've talked about it before but to reiterate i think that if you're just trying to seek happiness as your primary objective it tends to elude you right yeah. it's it's doesn't seem to work very often if that's everything you're focused on yeah and i mean if all you care about happiness like you had this like psychology study about this like why not just i don't know be shooting up morphine all day or heroin because that you're you're happy in the moment right if that if all you want is that feeling of euphoria mm -hmm. and you don't care about any deeper meaning then the, the literal then that's blue fine. pill right? yeah exactly uh so yeah again not meaning this to shame people who don't have kids or who aren't married i don't have kids and i'm not married um but i i think the idea that on average, married or sorry, unmarried childless women are happier than the average population. Like that's just not backed up from any of the other data that we've seen. Um, and not only are like, I guess, unmarried childless people on average, not happier. Um, but then we also have questions of fulfillment, happiness, purpose. And actually, but before we go, um, I often get people saying like, why do you care so much whether people have kids? I'm not saying anyone needs to drop what you're doing, have kids right now. Doesn't matter if you're not married. Doesn't matter if you can't support them financially. But it's like children are how our society survives. Right. So, yes, I think it's important because literally that's how our country continues. Like, I don't know why this is controversial to say. Um, but anyway, I think at that we will be back in just a few seconds with Stefan Molyneux. Exciting stuff. Hey, Stefan. Thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. Thanks uh, for the invitation. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you're someone whose videos I've been watching for a long time. You cover a lot of different topics that I'm definitely also interested in. And actually, uh, the reason why I wanted to have you on today is like, of course, we're talking about borderless in this episode. It just came out and you're someone who touches upon the issue of immigration a lot. But I think you also bring a unique perspective because you're someone who is, you know, very much small government. And actually, you you sent out this tweet the other day, which I'm just going to read. I thought I, I got a hoot out of it. Uh, you said, it's boring to rebut, but I have never claimed to be a white nationalist. I have always championed the non-aggression principle, NAP, which forbids the initiation of the use of force against others. The creation of an ethnostate violates the NAP, QED. Uh, you know, these are, of course, principles that most of us understand, but I love that you had to come out and say it. Um, but it, it, it brings an, ish, an interesting point to me, which is that 
you know, as someone who is, I think, very woke to the issues surrounding multiculturalism and mass immigration currently, um, how, how do you kind of reconcile that with the idea that small government is better? Because in my experience, borders, immigration in general seems to be an issue where libertarians are kind of split. So I guess what's your view of the issue? Well, so uh, I appreciate generally what I do is I pretend that, that the uh, earphone is not picking up that question so <laughs> that I never actually have to resolve that. Oh, yeah. Sneak, but, OK, never mind. <laughs> so, yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And it's trust me, it's something I've wrestled with quite a bit. And I see the comments, you know, oh, remember that guy used to be an anarchist. He used to be a libertarian. He used to be for small government. Now he's sold out to the border crowd and all that. So. I'm just going to start with the general philosophical principle, which you touched on there, which is disasters are largely set up to get you to abandon your principles, mm -hmm. right? Do you like having property rights? Well, too bad. It causes too much carbon emissions. It's going to cause the planet to explode, Bill Nye to have a nervous breakdown, and uh, inland real estate to suddenly raise in value. So sorry, you can't have property rights. And so a lot of times these disasters are engineered so that the consequences of holding on to your principles appear to be so deleterious that you've just got to jet jettison them. Like, you know, most times we like to have people stay with us on the ship. But if the ship is sinking, sometimes the fat guy has to go overboard, right? So we, we get these kind of emergencies. And so right now there is a big challenge with regards to immigration. Now, I would love to wake up in the morning, throw my wide my curtains, look at a wonderful multicultural country and breathe deep the spices and the scents and the music and the food and, and, and enjoy the frisson of cultures rubbing up against each other. But there's a bit of a problem, right? The bit of the problem is, is fundamentally this, that in general, in I guess what were sort of white founded or formerly white countries, non-whites who come to those countries relentlessly vote for larger and larger government. Now, I wish that wasn't the case. I mean, it's funny because people blame me for facts like I invented them or or I made them. It's like, like, I'm sorry, it's just not the case. And it's not around IQ differences because East Asians have higher IQs on average than whites, but still vote for the left. Jews have higher IQs and still vote for the left. So we have a challenge, which is in general, it's white males and to a smaller degree, white females who want smaller government, who want lower taxes and who support free speech, you know, kind of the foundations of our entire civilization. So statistically, and I was just looking this up with regards to New Zealand, right? In New Zealand, you, the, you can, I'll send you a link. You can put it in the show notes if you want. You can track how people voted. And the whites are desperately voting for smaller government and lower taxes, or at least against an expansion of government into sort of a leftist labor socialist on its way to communist camp. And the non-whites are relentlessly voting for larger and larger government. That's why they're being brought in. And this is sort of well understood. So the idea that you'd have a problem with mass immigration of groups who are going to vote against the foundational principles that you stand for, which is, for me, small to no government, low to no taxes, all that kind of stuff. Well, of course, there's going to be. I mean, the very reason that the left likes immigration is the very reason why libertarians or small government advocates are going to have a problem with immigration. We can read the numbers just as well as the West. Now, again, you never I'd put the caveat in, which is always important to remember, you would never judge an individual by the group averages. But unfortunately, or fortunately, voting is not an individual act. It's a group act, right? I mean, insofar as on average, you know, if you've got Hispanics voting for 
Democrats or blacks voting for Democrats or or East Asians voting for Democrats or whatever, right? It's not you, you can't deal with demographic averages in a democracy as if you're just dealing with each individual. So each individual you meet, you would deal with them as individuals. But when you zoom out, you have this issue that if you want smaller government or at least slowing the growth of big government, immigration is not going to do it for you. In fact, it's going to do quite the opposite. So the idea that we can deal with the growth of government without talking about immigration is a fantasy. I mean, those who want big government are specifically bringing those groups in because they vote for the left. And this has been explicitly stated by Democrat operatives. It's like, yes, immigration is a foundational part of how it is we're going to maintain our power. And if you look at American elections, the you know the past sort of half dozen elections, if it wasn't for immigration, would all have been won by Republicans and Republicans would have a much stronger base within the country. And if the Republican carrot that's out there, which is small government and uh, lower taxes, if it were actually true, I mean, it still remains debatable, then America would be able to reverse the growth of the state or at least arrest or at least hold it steady. But immigration works to the opposite direction. Now, if, of course, true socialism comes into power, true, like we're talking full on Venezuela slash Cuba slash Soviet Russia, communist China type, type socialism gets in, uh, it's it's more than just economic disaster. I mean, they when the socialists get a lot of power, they tend to arrest, throw in gulags and shoot people who have opposed socialism. Now, it's a little bit late for me to say Mulligan. <laughs> it's a little late for me to say, let's just do a do over. Hey, love those socialists. I, I was wrong. Right. They don't tend to um, those deathbed conversions don't tend to work very well. So it is a matter of life and death. The immigrants coming into the country who vote for larger and larger government are at some point going to tip the point, tip the power of the state to the point where the livelihoods, the the lives, uh, the survival, the freedoms of those who are opposed to socialism are just we're going to be at risk, a mm. significant risk, serious risk. Uh, our our families, our our children. I mean, you name it. So the idea that we can just ignore these basic demographic realities and only let them be leveraged by the left to me is is uh, maybe literally suicidal. Right. And I, I agree. And I think that establishment conservatives who don't want to talk about issues like immigration and demographics and securing elections, I think they are shooting themselves in the foot in the name of being politically correct, because I mean, I, I I don't think the left is unaware of these consequences, but I think, you know, you're, you seem to be talking from a little bit of a, like a North American perspective, because I mean, if you look at the voting blocks here, for sure, absolutely. We see very clearly that um, on average, conservatives, small government minded people tend to be overwhelmingly Caucasian. Um, but what, what I find so interesting is looking at Europeans and their elections, right? Because the, the idea that it's, white people being conservative and wanting small government, that's not really the case when we look at a lot of European countries where, it, I mean, we have this huge issue with immigration and, and refugees now, but even before that, we've seen people kind of embracing these big government policies, right? High taxes, the, the, the nanny state. And I think for a long time, because the people were more homogenous and more educated, I'm not going to call it full-on socialism, but these big government programs lasted and fared a lot better than they ever would in the States. What's your opinion on why Europe decided to start embracing these, these big government programs, even when they were homogenous? Well, I think that, I mean, certainly 
America was founded on explicitly philosophical principles. America did not accidentally come into being, so to speak. I mean, you had Enlightenment philosophers uh, heavily influenced by Paine, by, by Locke, and the founding fathers were very specific and very clear about the kind of country that they wanted to create, which is why you have a First and Second Amendment in America, the two pillars of, of freedom, so to speak. Europe is a much more accidental sort of house of cards gathered together under the tsunami or windstorm of history. And I think the most important thing, of course, to remember with regards to Europe is you can't really understand Europe and its problems with big government without understanding the First World War and the Second World War. So not counting the Civil War, which, of course, should be counted because it was, what, 800,000, 600,000 dead or something like that. No major wars have been fought on American soil. The the world wars, the wars in, in Korea and, and Vietnam and, of course, Iraq and Afghanistan and, and you name it, they're all overseas. They're all distant. And so when you have a giant war that rages back and forth across an entire, entire continent causing 50 to 60 million deaths, then, as you know, the old saying, war is the health of the state. So if you just look at the First World War, I mean, England was free in, in many ways, as was a lot of Europe before the First World War. When you have the flower of your youth destroyed, and you've got 10 million killed in the First World War, you have 20 million killed in the Spanish flu that was spread by the returning soldiers at the end of the First World War. So you've got a death count of you know 10 million young men mostly, and then 20 million young men and civilians and so on. You can't have a war unless you're willing to offer the war brides some sort of pension, right? Some sort. Of, so you have to have a giant government scheme in order to allow the women to continue to raise the children when there has been a dearth and a death of young men. Your tax base is uh, completely wrecked and destroyed, which is why you tend to lose the gold standard when you have a big war, because you, the only way you can afford the war is through war bonds, through debt, through money printing and all that. You can't, if you had to use gold, you, you, your war would be over in six months, right? So the war uh, destroys young men, destroys the tax base, destroys productivity at the same time as government spending has to go up vastly because you have to give all of these, well, you have to take care of the soldiers, you have uh, war brides who need pensions, you have children uh, who need to be raised, and so someone's got to pay for their health care. And so that is one sort of aspect, the sort of the left hook of the large state and the socialist policies in Europe. The second large hook, of course, is the Second World War. And this, of course, is after the grinding 13-year depression, largely set off by Fed policy and maintained by Fed policy in the US. But the second one, of course, the Second World War. The Second World War destroyed so much of Europe uh, from, from end to end and destroyed people's faith uh, in, in any rational civilization that they claimed they had inherited. And another thing that happened, which is sort of underappreciated, and this is more true in England of other places, at the end of the Second World War, you had uh, a huge number of geopolitical events that were domino effects from the war, not least of which, of course, was the end of the British Empire. Right, because everyone says, "Oh, the empire, the British Empire was so profitable. Everyone made so much money." It's like, well, what then? When England was financially drained at the end of the Second World War, why didn't they just make all their money back from the empire? Well, the empire was never a money maker. The empire was a vanity painting of a world map, and and required massive amounts of resources, if not downright war and slavery, of the British proletariat. And so, England lost the empire. Then you had a whole bunch of busybody socialists coming home from the empire who were used to running economies, right? I mean, uh, in, in India, they were running the economy. In, in Rhodesia, they were running the economy and, and, and other places. 
So in general, when you had the end of the empire, you had these central planning and managers all come home and you needed to find a job for them. And of course, you then turned from the, the, the communists and the socialists were very successful at portraying both the stock market boom of the 1920s, the Great Depression of the 1930s and the war of the 1940s as effects of capitalism, right? Oh, it's greed. And then uh, the capitalism is inherently unstable. And then there were all these war profits and capitalism loves making money off war. And so with, again, the one, two, three punch of the boom, the bust and the war being successfully recalibrated as condemned condemnations of capitalism, then you have a bunch of busybodies coming home who love managing economies. That's all they do. You have a population that has associated the boom, the bust and the war with capitalism. And that's why in Europe, they turn very seriously to the left, right? I mean, I remember being shocked as a kid that, that Churchill, who was, for all of his many, many flaws, at least a private property, free market kind of guy and an enemy of socialism, that Churchill was kicked out after winning the war and the Labour Party got in, the left party got in. And uh, my first exposure as a kid, just sort of personal stories as to how some beliefs get, get reinforced, is my first exposure to socialism was growing up in England in the 70s where there were coal shortages, there was meat shortages, uh, fuel shortages, food shortages as a whole. I mean, it was really uh, pretty, pretty rough. And the second thing that happened, of course, after the end of the Second World War, with the Allies being exhausted, was the Middle East stole pretty much all of the oil production, machinery and, and equipment and, and uh, infrastructure and the companies themselves sometimes. And what that did, of course, was it took over the next half century trillions and trillions of dollars from the West and poured it into the Middle East, which was then used in some ways to prop up the theocracies, to export uh, radical forms of Islamism, Wahhabism, and so on. And this mass wealth transfer based upon theft of the governments uh, in the Middle East of the uh, Western oil companies and infrastructure was a huge uh, blow against Christianity and a huge support for more extreme forms of Islam. And that's, you know, that's, you know, the, the, um, the asteroid hits and the, the sort of the, the crater is made and, and the debris flies up and so on. And so because of all of this, you had a weakened population that was terrified of capitalism and in some cases really genuinely felt that they needed the state in order to survive. And there were not the foundational philosophical principles embedded in law the way they are in the U.S. Constitution, in the U.S. Constitution. So I think that had a lot to do with how Europe ended up on the slippery slope to socialism. Uh, much more quickly. And of course, America didn't have an explicit empire, whereas a lot of countries in Europe did. And therefore, if you look at France and Algiers, right, uh, Algerians found it very easy to get French citizenship as a result of being right. subjugated by France. And so if you don't have an empire, you're not handing out passports, so to speak, uh, across the world. This happened in Pakistan and in India with regards to um, the UK and so on. So without an empire, you don't have until the 65 Immigration Act in the US, these open pipelines or pathways for people to come and claim citizenship in your country. Mm -hmm. So that was a quite comprehensive little history lesson there. I appreciate it. Uh, so let's let's kind of pivot forward. The, Europe, the European elections just happened. And I think kind of throughout the whole continent, we see a resurgence of, I think, nationalist populism. Um, you know, of course, there, those parties are called right wing over there, but the meaning is very different. I'm than sorry. I'm sorry. I, you, you must have misspoken there. I don't think you said extreme right wing. 
Yeah. Um, oh, so, I'm sorry. Yeah. You're right. Extreme. <laughs> you might need to rephrase that. Well, slightly. actually, that's that's what I wanted to ask you because you know these these parties that are being branded, like let for example, UKIP being branded a, a far right. The word right wing is very different in Europe than I think it is in Canada or, or, or the States even because I look at a lot of these parties that are nationalist and populist parties. I think that's fair, but they're not even necessarily in favor of more small government. So I think even though we're starting to see people push back against the idea of the EU and open borders and embrace national sovereignty a bit more, I don't think we're quite seeing yet a return to maybe small government principles. Do you think that's ever going to happen in Europe? Do you think that's starting now with this recent wave of election? What's your take? So in America, the goal is protect ourselves from socialism. In Europe, the goal is protect socialism for ourselves, <laughs> right? To make sure that we don't get too many immigrants, it's going to collapse the system, change our culture, then we won't get our tasty right. pig trough benefits <laughs> being handed out by the state. So it's a bit of a different fight in the uh, in Europe. Now, in Europe, of course, there is this fear of a big change in the culture and, and in the government and so on. But it's more a fear of the change in the culture than it is a change in the government. And of course, what do they call the Merkel's Lego, right? Like all of these big uh, uh, diversity barriers to make sure that, that trucks often driven by immigrants, uh, both legal and illegal, go flying through the streets uh, of Europe. So there's a fear of terrorism. There's a fear of a change of the culture. But... I've not, and I think you're right to, very right to point this out and astute to say that it's not because, well, you know, immigrants vote for big government. We want smaller government, and that's the issue. I think the concern is that there's going to be cultural changes plus terrorism, and that's what's driving it. In other words, well, we like the system that is, which is socialistic to a large degree, mm -hmm. and we want to keep that for ourselves and not have it be diluted with new immigrants. But that's not the way it foundationally works, I think, in America, as, as you rightly point out. Mm -hmm. And so, okay, let's look at the states in Canada then. Um, if you look at polls, a lot of people say immigration is one of the biggest issues they have. If you look at Canada specifically, uh, you know, majority say either fewer or the same, definitely not more. But when we look at our left wing parties, uh, you know, the liberals here, Democrats in the US, it feels like they've they've taken this open border globalist pill and swallowed it, even though they're not even representative of what their own party members may believe. Um, you know, I would like to think that, oh, because so many people are against this, want to do something about it, it's going to get done. Uh, but I think that would be naive. Even, even with Trump in office, we see that, you know, walls not built. There's still all this debate about what to do with the U.S. borders. And then, of course, you can't say Canadians stay out of it because guess what? Anything that filters up through Mexico, because we have all these nice social programs in Canada, a lot of them are now coming over here. Um, what do you think we can do in regard to this? Because I'm someone who I'm, I'm quite skeptical of the idea of democracy being efficient. I don't really I'm not very optimistic at this point when I look at the numbers of people who are coming in, uh, you know, from the southern border of Mexico and then even between U.S. and Canada. We've had, I think they're supposed to be called irregular immigrants uh, being an issue. W what do you think is going to happen going forward? Oh, yeah, you see now, but this is the challenge is that it's sort of like you're asking me as the sailor of a ship, where do you think the ship is going to go? <laughs> and I don't like to make predictions because that diminishes our capacity to influence change. Mm -hmm. So where is any country or any culture or any society or any civilization, where does it go? Well, it goes wherever the strongest will people take it. And the left has a giant dare out, which is, okay, if you don't talk about particular facts, you can say whatever you want. But if you do talk about particular facts, 
then we're going to try and destroy your life. Now, the question is, do you fold and say, well, I'm not going to talk about things the left doesn't want me to talk about so they don't get too mad, in which case they're going to win? Or do you say, well, I'm sorry, my conscience tells me or instructs me or maybe even commands me to speak the truth no matter where it leads, are we going to speak difficult truths to people about, you know, IQ differences, about cultural differences, about capacities for integration, and about the basic motivation for bringing particular cultures into the West, which is to stuff the ballot for the left? Are we going to talk about those difficult topics? Well, if the left cows us into not talking about those topics, we're going to lose. Now, as someone myself who is talking about these topics, I think that helps us win. So where where is it going to go? Well, I think where strong-willed and good men and women take it. Well, I mean, I, I I like that answer a lot, but uh, you know, if I think about who's the most strong-willed right now, I would like to say that oh, it's us. But uh, unfortunately, even though they may lack a lot of, I think, intellectual strength, um, you know, the left for all of their faults, they they don't lack the will to get things done, and I think they've been very very strategic. Um, maybe before we go, another thing that I would kind of like to touch on is the issue of like culture. Um, now, you're someone who, you know, you've spoken about your atheism before, but I, I've noticed recently you're, you're speaking a lot about things like Christian culture and values. And I think this is an issue that's especially important uh, in places like Europe, where, you know, the immigrants who are coming into the United States largely are Hispanic. So, I mean, there, there's at least a Catholic tradition there. I think the cultural differences are less there than in places like Europe, where the immigrants not only don't speak the language, but they're also coming from uh, more Islamic cultures. Um, as, as someone who is a, a secularist, what role do you think that Christianity plays in this going forward? Because I, I talk to a lot of atheists who say that there is anything good about Christianity is not exclusive to Christianity, right? Any of these, I guess, Jude Christian values that uh, people like to talk about, you know, love thy neighbor, tolerant, etc. We can have that without Christianity. What role do you think Christianity is going to play in the culture war going forward? <laughs> I like how I'm going to walk out of this interview with no friends whatsoever, but that's good. <laughs> that means that the questions are, are It means it was spicy. No, no, that's good. That's, uh, that's exactly why it's worth doing an interview with you. So with regards to atheism, the question fundamentally is what motivates atheism? Now, mm. I have spent a lot of time around atheists. I remain philosophically an atheist because I simply have to, again, follow the reason and evidence where it lands. But atheism has a particular culture. And the people who say atheism, you know, is to beliefs as baldness is to hair color, it's like, nope, that's not true. Atheism is associated with specific and particular political beliefs. Notably, atheism is enormously correlated with being on the left. So that to me is very interesting. If atheism is simply a lack of belief in a God, then it should not be at all predictive of political stance. Right. Right. So if you say, well, I don't believe in Zeus, does that tell you where someone lands on the political spectrum? Well, no, because a communist doesn't believe in Zeus and neither does a Christian. But if you're an atheist, I've seen a variety of studies. One is you are 700 percent more likely to be a Democrat than a Republican. I've seen uh, other data that's even higher. So if atheism specifically and overwhelmingly predicts your political position on the left, that you're going to be on the left, then atheism simply cannot be a neutral rejection of the existence of God. It must be part of a larger and more comprehensive worldview. So after much thought, and, and also, see, I, I this is coming on for 10 years or more ago now. One of my first articles that I published close to 15 years ago was a rational proof of secular ethics. I then expanded it into a book, which is available for free on my website called 
universally preferable behavior, a rational proof of secular ethics. It's also an essential philosophy, also a free book. And I worked out a secular system of ethics that did not require government enforcement nor a um, religious commandment or religious commandments. So I thought the atheist would be like, hallelujah. <laughs> you know, he solved the problem of the ages. He's given us a system of ethics that isn't based on some Dawkins, half Darwinian, reciprocal, altruistic bull nonsense, you know, that doesn't really add up to much. And it's not based upon, well, you just got to obey the law, which Lord knows hasn't worked out very well throughout most of human history. So I thought the atheist would react to this proof, which has now stood the test of time and is, is as bad a solace as you can get in philosophy. And they'd say, wow, you've given us the holy grail of atheism, which is a proof of ethics that we have been without, right? Spoiler, funny story, um, did not happen. In fact, quite the opposite happened. Atheists got really mad at me. Now, that to me was really fascinating. Atheists, they published scathing, critical, terrible, uh, uh, and, and ir irrational, anti-rational, quote, reviews of the book and of the theory and so on. And I invited them on to debate, and they lost every time, but it never took off. So that's like, how could this possibly be that this philosophical proof that gives atheists the foundation of ethics that atheism has always been criticized for lacking. How could this be rejected? And then I got it. I got it. The atheists rejected my theory of ethics, not because they could disprove it, which I would have been happy to hear. I could have refined it. But because it was blasphemy to their new religion, which was the state. Hmm. And that relationship, that if you take out a Christian God from a culture the great fear was always what replaces it. Nietzsche talked about this fear. Darwin talked about this fear. What happens if you take the Christian God out of the heart of a man, the heart of a woman? What does he or she end up being obedient to, worshiping, holding as the highest value? It turns out to be the state. So the reason why the atheists didn't like my theory of ethics was because not because it, quote, disproved the Ten Commandments, but because... And it didn't disprove the Ten Commandments, but it had a different epistemology or a, a way of, of working out the problem. But because if you accept universally preferable behavior, the universality of property rights, of self-ownership, then the state ceases to exist as a valid moral construct. And that's the church they couldn't stand to be pulled down. And that's why they opposed the theory so much. Now, Christians, interestingly, have actually embraced and debated the theory in very positive ways with me which is why I say that Christians are much more intellectually curious. If you go to a, if I go to a Christian and I say, I don't believe in God, we can have a great conversation. If I go to an atheist and I say the state does not exist, the atheist gets really messed up. It's, it's much more fundamentalist and dangerous a belief than Christianity is at the moment because I can have a neighbor who's a Christian. I may be an atheist. We can live and let live. We can have great conversations and, and all of that. But if I have a neighbor and a whole bunch of neighbors who are socialists, well, they vote to take away my property. They vote to take away my freedom of speech. They may, in fact, vote to take away my liberty, which is not going to happen with Christians. Right. So with Christianity, the value is not the stuff that you mentioned. I, I hate to say this, but the value is not things like love your neighbor and tolerance. Christianity's great and powerful value, which when combined with Greek or Roman philosophy, is that it is not tribal. Christianity, like the original commandment was thou shalt not kill Jews, right? Christianity said, no, thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not murder, 
right? So they took the moral rules and didn't say, like, you know, in, in Islam, many forms of Islam, uh, you are morally responsible to another Muslim, but not in the same way to a non-Muslim. It's the same thing with Judaism. You're morally responsible to a fellow Jew, sometimes in not in the same way as you would be with a non-Jew. But Christianity doesn't have that. Thou shalt not steal is not, well, you can steal from people who aren't Christians. That's okay, right? It's, it's universal. And so the, the universality behind you know, Plato's forms, Aristotle's empiricism, and, and uh, Socrates, the Socratic method and all of that, you combine the universality of philosophy, the universality of science, which was nurtured and brought along quite well by Christianity, contrary to a lot of propaganda that I myself swallowed for many years. You combine Greek or Roman philosophy, the universality of science, and the universal ethics of Christianity, and that gave us a pretty great modern world. And then if you bring in tribalistic cultures that say, my group matters, your group is suspect, well, you get Ilhan Omar, right? Mm -hmm. And I think well, we actually just heard this in church this past Sunday, Christianity is the only religion that tells you to love your enemies. I mean, everyone tells you to you know, love your family, love your brothers, uh, lo love your community, but Christianity is special in that regard. And, you know, I, I mean, I'll be honest here, I used to be an atheist. I have friends and family members who are atheists. But when I think about atheism as an ideology, and I think political movement, it's fair to say nowadays, I can't help but see a lot of ties to what I view as largely the, the reasons why the West is failing right now. If I look at the, yeah. the schisms that are happening between the genders, if I look at the breakdown of the family, generations of women who are saying that they don't even want children anymore and look at that we're just not having children um as someone who like you know yourself you're you're an atheist how how can we reconcile with pe people like you the idea that christianity is still good right if even you who sees the the moral good and importance of christianity uh is is not a christian how, how can we proceed right because i mean uh, it will always encourage Christians to proselytize, et cetera, et cetera. But I think we're at a point now where there are so many people who are either agnostic or atheist or you know, downright anti-theist, where, I mean, as much as I would, and I, I know a lot of the people who, who follow me would love to see, you know, a, a modern, like, theocracy reborn almost. I, I think it's just not realistic at this point. How can we reconcile these, these I don't know, like, hedonistic, nihilistic, atheist, secular, humanist beliefs with Christianity? Well, one approach that I have actually found to be quite effective, and I didn't get this around atheism in particular because I did not come to atheism out of a love of the state or out of a hatred of everything Christian. So the big question for atheists is this, is that given that Christianity, and it is in general in Christian countries, um, particularly with the Greek or Roman tradition, that you have these small governments, this modernity, this sense of rights, equality for women, equality for minorities, and all of that. This is where this comes about. You need to kind of figure out why that happened. You can't just say white people because, you know, white people were around for a long time when these institutions weren't. And you can't just, and this is another reason why white nationalism to me is not particularly appealing because white countries did start the First World War, did start the Second World War. That was a lot of people killed, not just in white countries, but kind of around the world. And I can understand why other countries would look and say, yeah, I'm not sure that we want that again. So I'm, I'm there, like I'm with, I'm with all of that. And I, I sympathize with all of that. The problem is big government. So the question for atheists is, 
Is it even remotely possible that what stands between those who want power over others and their goal is the church? And I'm not talking about, I hate to say, the, the, the church of the current Catholic Pope or whatever, but the, the, the actual church. Because if you can't give people the reason to be good that they can internalize, they're going to turn to the state, and you're going to need the state. In other words, if it becomes this Nietzschean, Darwinian, will to power, war of all against all, and you grab whatever you can from the common pile and to hell with your enemies and so on, well, you kind of get the 20th century, which was not great in so many ways. It was a terror. You got a quarter of a billion people, a quarter of a billion people, Lauren, as you know, slaughtered by their own governments in the 20th century, largely by governments that had abandoned the concept of God. And so, oh, certainly of the Christian God. So it could be that people have been tricked into giving up on God because God, the Christian God, stands between the power lustres and the throne that they seek. Because if you don't have a Christian God, people will take what they can get. You take us back to mammalian, Darwinian, manipulative, lie, cheat, steal, rob to get resources. Because people don't have, thou shall not steal, you're being watched, you're going to have to account for yourself, and there will be a penalty for immorality, both in guilt in this life and in punishment in the afterlife, in some combination of, of limbo or purgatory or hell itself, you will pay for what you do. Of course, if you don't have any internalized ethics, if you get away with the crime, what's the problem? Well, reciprocal altruism and SEALs like doing this, it's like, hey, you know, the Clintons made $100 million, you know? <laughs> Look at how much money uh, George, George Bush got a comfortable pension after starting a war in Iraq. Barack Obama's worth heaven knows how much. These people have got enough money for the next 20 generations. Now, in a Christian universe, it's ill-gotten gains. It's going to turn to ashes in their hands. They're going to see the horror of their life as they die, and they're going to hell. But in an atheistic universe... They've got the resources that all the animals want to get, and they got it. So they got it at the expense of other animals. So what? A lion is supposed to starve to death because it doesn't want to eat the antelope? Or the male lion comes along, uh, and there's a single mom, female lion. The first thing that that new male does if, if he wants to mate with the mother is, is kill the children because he doesn't want to invest resources into raising another man's children. So the problem is, is if you don't have ethics that you can internalize, what stops you from being bad? Nothing's watching. There's no intrinsic moral nature to the universe. There's no consequences. If you don't feel bad, and of course, sociopaths and psychopaths don't feel bad about the things they get and the things they steal, so how are you going to tell them to be good? Well, it's to the productive ends of like oh, even the objectivist argument in Ayn Rand. Oh, that which is good for man. It's like the system's been pretty good to the Clintons. You know, Bill stayed out of jail, and you know, Hillary got to destroy an entire country called Libya because she didn't like the fact that Gaddafi was going to come up with his own competitor to the petrodollar, and, and they got $100 million. I mean, to go and give a speech in, in Russia for, what is it, like half an hour and get paid $600,000, all of which mysteriously dried up when she was no longer Secretary of State? I mean, they, they made a fortune. So how are you going to tell atheists, well, this is becoming more and more common. The idea that you would be scared of doing wrong if you can get away with it. Well, with Christianity, you can't get away with it. With an increasingly overburdened police force, and, and you can get away with it.
And so the atheistic argument is the most successful species gathers the most resources for the least effort. That's Darwin. And using the state, you can gather an enormous amount of resources for a relatively small degree of effort. So what if the atheists are tricked into believing in atheism because it kills the conscience of the average person, which increases the power of the least moral among us in their pursuit of power over us? Mm -hmm. I think I think you've hit on something there because something else I've noticed when I look at, for example, modern feminist movements is the the idea that guilt and shame are evil. And I, I right. kind of went over this when I was speaking with Brittany Pettibona last December with her new book. You know, shame and guilt, those aren't necessarily bad things. That's your conscience telling you what you are doing is is wrong. But it's like we've become so committed to the idea that in, in some cases there should be no right or wrong. Uh, that we're now we're not even allowing ourselves to experience guilt or shame. But this is something I could speak with you about for for a long time. And I hope we do get to again soon. But uh, for anyone who for some reason, whatever, I don't know how they could not know of you by now. But if they're not following you yet, where can they find you? Oh, uh, so freedomainradio.com. You can catch me on YouTube, cross your fingers, at <laughs> youtube.com forward slash freedomain. And um, it was a great pleasure to chat. We, should, we shouldn't leave it so long till, till next time. It's a really enjoyable conversation. Yeah, for sure. And again, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. That's it for the show tonight, guys. Thank you so much for tuning in. And if you are one of our live viewers, then be sure to stay on this stream because we will be back in just a few seconds with some exclusive Q&A. But aside from that, we'll see you next time.